that most systems, the change isn't by adding new systems, it's the change within the system that's, that's interesting. And being able to understand and connect all the dots between the existing systems that people want to use is kind of where we want to move the conversation to. This season, Andy and Mark are back with a fantastic group of guests. I've been to depths that remain classified, and Mark keeps his head in the clouds. With our combined experience in the industry, we can go from the bare metal to the boardroom. In DevOps Sauna Season 3, we'll explore platform engineering and the people and cultures that make it happen. Enjoy your time in the DevOps Sauna. Okay, we are back in the sauna, and I'm super excited to, uh, do I have to say finally, Mike? It's like we've been trying to set this up for months, it feels like. Mike Long, CEO of Costly, is in the sauna today. Hi, great to be here. All right, and as usual, I have my beloved cohort, Andy Allred. Yep, hello, great to be here as always. Okay, so Mike met you at the DevOps conference in Copenhagen last year. And when I looked at what Costly was doing, and when I talked with some of my colleagues and Andy and I, it kind of feels like there's a lot going on. Like some people had a FinOps kind of interpretation, even um, me with a software configuration management background. I thought that there's some really cool things that Costly is doing. Um, the compliance aspect, uh, security is really obvious. And then I know that you are also a startup and working, uh, doing, I think, even making an impact in, uh, you know, DevOps culture and, you know, even, you know, kind of providing a, a data layer for DevOps. So, wow, that's, there's a lot going on there. So tell me what's, what are you doing with Costly and how do, how do you see it instead of me telling you what we see? So. Well, I mean, it's, it's good you say this because ourselves as a startup, we've been on a bit of a journey figuring much of this out already. So like in a nutshell, what Cosley does is we record what goes on in your production environments, what systems are running, and as they change, we record those different changes. And then we connect to what's happening in your development pipelines. So the builds, the tests, the commits, the security scans, and so on. And I make it like a big searchable graph. So we started on this journey very much from a compliance angle, believing like there was a big problem to be fixed in the world. And that was around basically how banks change software. It, Typically, it involved a lot of things like change advisory boards, release notes, uh, tickets, uh, and in general, a lot of delays. Like Oh, the good old days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's so much of the industry still in that space. And, you know, going back to the DevOps story, it's like really the opposite of DevOps in terms of owning the value stream, generative cultures, instilling trust and, and being able to optimize the whole. So we kind of had this thesis that we could really help these companies if we could just, you know, build the risk and the audit capabilities right into the, the pipelines. So that was kind of where we started. But, you know, after a while, we zoomed out a little bit and realized, okay, what is this? Is it a DevOps data lake? Is it a version control system of a sort? You know, and in a way, what we do is provide a log of how your systems change. And we figured out, well, we can also, because it's content addressable storage, kind of like Git, we can diff two environments and tell you, okay, you've got 15 systems in this one, 14 in this, and these are the three that are different. Okay. So, I mean, long story short, we don't really know what it is yet, but it's, it's super interesting at least. 
in the pregame, we had a little discussion and you said the black boxes for software or DevOps. And I just, I thought that was absolutely brilliant that, you know, one of the things when I got into uh, configuration management was like the promise of being able to have end-to-end traceability. And when you take end-to-end traceability with this, you know, kind of Git-like diff capability, man, that's cool. Yeah, and like we've been circling around this problem for a long time in the DevOps world, right? Basically, like our mantra since the beginning is everything is code. So, you know, we start with automating our build and then, you know, we'll make that a script that we all share. And then we'll do it in CI and what we'll let's let's actually script our pipelines now and then okay well let's script our deployments and let's script our infrastructure so we're putting everything into git which is great that's what enables the automation to happen but that only stores the the record of our if you like our recipes our in, our expectations what we'd like to happen it doesn't actually record what actually happens like the what what artifact actually gets built what chat has what the security scan report is where when it gets deployed to which environment and that's kind of the the rich information that we also want to capture and that's kind of what we're playing with now in Cosly so in in regular devops i can already define that i want this release to go to this environment and have this many replicas and then the orchestration tool will read that out of git and kind of make it reality and what you're adding is a record of what actually happened in reality that we can compare back to what we wanted to happen in diff and how long it took and what kind of exceptions there were and et cetera, et cetera. And not just that. There's, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen outside of the world of the, you know, what you wish to be true. There's scaling events when things go up and go down, when systems crash, when somebody has kubectl access and deploys stuff manually. Uh, these are all things that happen. We'd really like to also be able to track that. So when your system crashes and gets redeployed, where does that information hide? And this is kind of the, the big limitation with traditional change management as well. It's like there's still in the mindset of you have a big server that you redeploy to twice a year. Uh, and then there's someone actually doing something. And then there's a, an army of people around this big fancy system trying to keep it alive. The reality is now, like, we've got so much automation. The, our runtime systems are so autonomous. Cool. And you guys are also a startup. So you're going through, you know, I know a little bit about starting a company from scratch and the kind of level of responsibility and, and pressure um, that we go through doing this. But you guys are really trying to do it differently, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I guess part of it was kind of really feeling that we wanted to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. So as a technical founder, I, I wrote the first you know, thousand odd commits in the, the product. We, you know, we were just James and I for almost two years figuring out what this company would be, what the product would look like, working with our initial design customers. So the reason how I got into DevOps in the first place goes all the way back to university where I kind of got bit by the extreme programming bug where, you know, test-driven development was suddenly the new thing and continuous integration. A lot of these concepts that Kent Beck kind of crystallized I'd brought with me through my career I'd used them uh, making software for you know a lot of robots in the oil and gas industry and uh, doing a lot of DevOps consulting as well I thought okay I know that these things give me results and by no means did anything 
like anything I did in the beginning work very well because as a solo founder, you kind of, you don't have that pressure. Like working on your own is probably the most dangerous thing to do as a technologist. But as we grew the team, got a lot of great technologists involved, we kind of kept it going with the test room development, the CI, the pipelines, automation. Uh, so I think we, like for a small team, we've got a lot of the kind of engineering practices you, you would hope in a high-performing tech team. That also comes with its own challenges, right? How do you make ensemble programming as you grow the team? How do you make sure that people coming into the company understand that we do test-driven development, we do pair programming, we, we do automation, and this is the kind of culture you'll be entering? So it's in a lot of ways, it's, we set the bar very high. And the other side, you know, engineers, especially software developers, really thrive in aut autonomy. They want to make decisions. They want to be empowered to make decisions. And some of this can be a threat to, to that. So balancing these needs is an interesting problem, to, or at least uh, it's an interesting navigational problem. Um, I have a, a follow-up about the middle of this, which was like when you talked about working with your initial customers. So can you talk a little bit about how you initially presented with, you know, identified customer, you know, presented the work that you were doing, and then, you know, how did you collaborate in the early days at the startup in order to stay on the right track? And Well, I mean, we've, we've been very lucky in the sense that from the very beginning, we've had customer feedback into our product development. So before we even formed the company, before we had any software, we showed what we wanted to build to, to one of the biggest banks in our region. And they liked it enough to say that, yes, we'll fund the initial development of this. We thought, okay, there's some signal that there's a problem to be solved here. And they trust us to be able to move towards a solution on this, which is great. And then like all the way through our process, it was like, okay, well, I mean, the bigger the organization, the more mature they expect their, their software deliveries to be, which is like a, a good thing, but also a curse because as a startup, you want fast decisions, you want quick implementation, a lot less kind of upfront decision-making and a lot more agility. So but not long into our journey, we realized that working with smaller companies, smaller fintechs was a great way to, to bring them in because they had much simpler organizations, typically smaller tech organizations. So we could easily figure out what they needed we could get direct access to the whole uh, engineering team so we could get feedback from them. And then, you know, and bring them into our Slack communities, make sure that they're part of our product roadmap decisions, understand what they care about. And, and also it's been fun going through the journey with them because, you know, our customers that we've had for a couple of years now are going through audits. They're going through, uh, you know, the financial regulators coming by. And, you know, we, we get the full rich history of what they care about which is uh, probably the key aspect of success in any startup. There's a big difference between being compliant and passing audits. And have you, have you gotten, <laughs> have you gotten any, um, so you said some of them are now going into, some of your customers are going through audits. It's like, has there been a big difference in how that audit kind of goes for a customer that's, that's a costly customer? Yeah, I mean, massive. One of the, like one of our kind of best customers, last year they made 110,000 changes to their production environment. And like just in itself, being able to do that would never be possible in a traditional change process. So like they're able to move really fast, but they're also a really young company. They were 
just a couple of years into the journey when we met them and their first audit took three months. Of course, it was the first audit going towards getting a, a license for payments in crypto. So it was a lot of a lot of questions that needed to be answered for them to, to get started. But they had their follow-up audit last in the last quarter and it took three days. And, you know, auditors ask funny things like, can you give me a list of every single change to production and their associated code reviews? And that would typically take days to go through. You know, you, you would have to do a sampling with the, the auditor over your shoulder. But with Cosly, it's just an export. And then you give it to the auditor and say, and if you want, we can just give you access to Cosly and you can click around and find, navigate all this yourself. So I mean that's that I mean that's obviously a, a great sales uh, story for us. But genuinely, this is like these kind of customers are great for us because going back to the, the earlier question about how do we involve our customers? Now this customer is involved in like a two-year innovation contract with us as we build out new features, and they're completely to the side of anything we'd ever thought about because we're very much focused in the the development and the operations world and kind of tying that all together. But what they're saying is, well, actually, we've got a lot of use cases that are outside of that, that we want a provable append-only journal outside of our kind of IT infrastructure to satisfy auditors. So it could be things like, as an example, in a financial institution, you have organization like people in the company whose job is to do uh, compliance checks. Is this person actually who they say they are? It's called know your customer. Uh, are they credit worthy? Are they doing anything like criminal with them with their bank account, this kind of thing. These compliance officers have got an enormous amount of access to very sensitive personal information. And as they access this, you want a provable log of what they're accessing so that when the auditors come by and say, ah, this compliance officer is very interested in this famous person's bank account. Is that really for compliance issues or is that because they're quite interested in famous people? Uh, so being able to have these provable logs of kind of sensitive business processes uh, is an area where we just wouldn't figure out that it could be possible or even a problem to solve unless we were really close to our customers. You've mentioned a couple of times FinOps and whatnot. So all your customers in FinOps, is that target market that you're targeting specifically or is, does it just happen to be that that's who you've been talking to? Well, fintech is interesting for us because they really have a pants-on-fire problem, which is they want to deliver software change fast, but traditionally they've not been able to because of a compliance officer, someone in their IT risk team, a change management board. There's all these kind of you know organizational scar tissue built up over the, the years. So, I mean, it, it's a great place for us to start to figure out. But as I kind of hinted at earlier, we want to broaden our area of focus now. We think that, okay, we can certainly help those those kind of customers, but what about other DevOps teams that are not in financial institutions? How would Cosly be interested? Is it for incident management? Typically, like we know from the Google SRE book, 70% of system outages are due to changes in a running system. Being able to understand changes and where they came from could be a useful diagnostic and incident response. Also, from a security point of view, like if we take the log4j incident or anything like it, really, any kind of supply chain attack. Typically, a lot of people are doing some kind of scanning on their on their binaries and on their Docker images before they go into production, which is great. But when a vulnerability comes through, quite often these registries or uh, artifact management systems can uh, say which artifacts 
are vulnerable. But going from there to figure out what systems do I need to patch, that's a leap. But with Cosly, if you store the SBOM, then it's a query. You know, you look into the production environments, you get all the SBOMs, and you see is log4j version X in there. And then you've got an idea of what to do. Let's just pretend I don't know what an SBOM is. Can you explain it for our listeners who might not be familiar? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, sorry. That's a software bill of materials. So it's it's kind of a, a very interesting part of, well, especially the open source conversation right now. Every software system, nearly every software system depends largely on opaque binaries from the wider world, be them open source or not. So the question is, what are the ingredients to my my software system? And then, okay, do we have a standard format for that? There are standard formats emerging, uh, like SPDX, Cyclone, but there'll be more to come, I imagine. And the idea is that if you have a software bill of materials, you can check for if you're using licenses you're not happy with, if you're using non-vulnerable dependencies, that kind of thing. We had Kelsey Hightower also at the... uh... DevOps conference where we met you, and he was making the point that you would never put a CD or a USB drive into your computer and just run that in production, but everybody does exactly the same thing with GitHub. So this SBOM is kind of like really a key thing for understanding what you're deploying, and I guess that ties in very nicely with how Cosly is understanding and knowing what you have in production. So it's more more than just a list of these are the containers, or these are the containers, or these are the EC2 instances that I have, but really this is the software that I have running. Yeah, absolutely, and it's more than that as well. Like as a like, there's so many stakeholders in the software development process that getting everyone on the same page with real information is often quite a, a hard thing to do. I guess this is why we have the rise of developer platforms and you know platform teams and platform engineering. It's like how do we bring all the stakeholders together and give them a self serve thing that actually works for them? Because like developers care about getting their software tested and into production. That's their goal. Uh, but then you've got QA engineers who want to know what features went out in the last release. What are the, the code uh, changes? You've got security security teams who want to know what assets do I have? Have they all been scanned with a security scanner? Do I have any assets that are stale? Like, is there, been, is there a system running in our production environment live connected to the internet that hasn't been changed in more than six months? That's a risk. We need to figure it out. So there's, there's just, I think that DevOps is just maturing. You know, we had a very narrow vision of DevOps initially, Dev and Ops together. And then we brought in QA, we brought in security, we are bringing in compliance. You know, we're just trying to bring in more and more people to work on the value stream rather than in silos. And I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah. A lot of what you've been saying just really resonates that these are problems that every customer I talk to has. That what's running, when was it deployed, who has done what, kind of all this type of stuff that every IT company needs to know. Well, every company needs to know, IT or not. Hi, it's Mark again. GitOps is the method to begin your developer experience and have a record of what you put into production. To hear more, I recommend our podcast episode on Crossplane with Victor Farsik. I'll leave a link for you in the show notes. Now back to our show. That's why I was asking earlier that you you talk about your fintech customers. So I think this is something that is much more widely applicable and 
just want to get your perspective that are you targeting fintech because they're the ones who need this the most? Or is there something special about fintech that you think that's a unique angle to get in? No, I think it was like it was very useful for us to start with, like in order to be able to prove that we we're building the right product and we were solving like a high value need. Like every developer tool has a challenge, right? Because what you want to do is to provide it free, but you also want to be able to have a business that works. So you have to kind of solve for those two needs. Uh, and we we were kind of in the weird situation where we figured out how to so- sell something at a very expensive price tag. But we didn't get it in the hands of the developers, whereas it's typically the other way around. Most developer tool companies start with something free or open source that people love and that it expands. So, you know, what we're working a lot on in the company is flipping that around again. So just before Christmas, we launched a free tier of our product, which for small teams who just want to keep track of what's going on, they can they can use Causely. It doesn't cost them anything. And you know, they can, from the command line, figure out what's in prod, where their commits are, do attestations, def environments, all that stuff. So we're very much in exploratory mode to see where outside of finance and where outside of regulated and standards we could be interested in. And the part of that as well is like, as we build command line tooling, we realize that's, that's really a power tool for power users. And we have the web interface, which is which is great for figuring things out. But what we see is the real gap is around the collaboration aspects, because most of the time you want to have a conversation about what's going on in your systems, either your code or your environments or your pipelines, especially when it comes to incident and security stuff. So the next part of our journey is implementing uh, Slack integration. So all the commands that you can run at the command line, you can do in a Slack channel and uh, have a conversation around your systems, uh, which we think is, like, as we see the trends, definitely chat is a, a very powerful tool in this more remote distributed working style we have. This is an, there's an interesting thing that you just uh, kind of triggered with me, which is that moving the conversation away from and moving the conversation to. So costly is moving the conversation away from some operational discussions and it's moving the conversation then towards more, uh, you know, value capture kind of discussions. So would you like to use that kind of analogy and, and tell us like, you know, you're moving the conversation away from what and towards what for the organizations that are your customers? Oh, that's an interesting challenge. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess like the, what we're trying to do is like our central thesis is that DevOps is great, but it's missing a data layer. Like we have all these individual point tools. We've got, you know, Git hosting providers. We've got CI platforms and pipelines. We've got security tools. We've got deployment tools. We've got uh, cloud infrastructure. Each of them has their own data silo. Each of them has their own user interface. And typically each of them has their own user. So a lot of users are comfortable in GitHub will not be very happy in the AWS console. Folks that are really comfortable in the AWS console, probably not so happy understanding what's going on in the pipeline logs. So like stitching all of these different systems together into like a connected graph is, is our central thesis. So again, it's like a lot of the platform engineering talks about above the surface challenges. Like how do we connect the teams? How do we get them to like write a YAML file and get everything they need. That That's kind of, uh, okay, maybe it's a bit tongue-in-cheek and simplified, but that seems to be a lot of what platform engineering is about. Can we make it simple for developers to self-serve their thing? 
the thing is that there's more than the developers that need to be concerned about this. And it's not just about the provisioning. It's not the day zero stuff, like how do we get started? And maybe for some organizations that are spinning up a new system every week, but most systems, the change isn't by adding new systems. It's the change within the system that's, that's interesting. And being able to understand and connect all the dots between the existing systems that people want to use is kind of where we want to move the conversation to. You remind me some discussions that I've heard from some of our customers. Well, they've started building a data lake, but they're they're not exactly sure what to do with it. And many people aren't exactly sure what's in there. So you've kind of solved yet another kind of area here by unifying the data layer. Mm. I think that's really, really interesting. And um, frankly, I think we're still at the very beginning of what, like if I'm fuzzy about what the use cases are, I think that it's because we haven't really discovered them all yet. I was meeting uh, someone who's high up in DevOps at Capital One a few months back in, in Washington. And he was also building a data lake, trying to build something like Cosly. He said, ah, this is great because what I can do is I have scripts that can grep through all of our code base history. Like for all of the repos in our bank, I can go through every single commit, say there's a log for J or whatever, and find out which commits have this vulnerability. Then the trick is, well, how do we get from that to the artifact? Well, we have that information. And then how do we get from that to, and when, if ever it was running in production? So then we know when we have to do network traffic analysis on, because of course they, they record all of their network traffic. But when you're looking at that volume of data, you need to like figure out where you're going to sample to find out if you've been breached or not. And a lot of companies don't, like the time between them actually being breached and finding out they've been breached is is often quite large. It can be months and years. So like figuring out how far to wind back the clock is like a, an interesting question. Another example is like, say in retrospect, you find that you did a calculation around, uh, well, it doesn't matter, it could be anything, but say it's around how you uh, calculate tax for a certain product and you fix it or it has been fixed. So there was a period in the code base between this commit and that commit that had this bug in it. Which database roles do I need to fix or uh, reevaluate? That, that's a hard question, but you need to know how the commits turn into artifacts, turn into periods of time that they were actually running. And then you can like use that as like the kind of the, the search criteria in your database. So we, we still don't know, but it's, it's fun to find out. I think you're going to have a wonderful journey finding more and more uses here. I, I, I can hardly even contain it all at the moment, but let's try a different topic for a moment. It's like, I think you're the, you know, everything you described about the, the culture within Costly is really interesting and, you know, kind of even sounds, I'll use the word state of the art. Do you feel like you're contributing, you know, outside of Costly towards, you know, mainstream DevOps culture or local DevOps culture or? Well, I mean, we'd like to, we'd, we're definitely very open about the way we work. For instance, Evelina, one of our colleagues, she's spoken at several conferences around our ensemble ways of working. And I, I'm quite involved in the DevOps Days community in Scandinavia and, and around the world. So we try to get out and be pretty open about what we're doing. I'm also a little bit reluctant to kind of preach a bit too much because what works for us uh, is what we've decided works for us. But it's not like that this is the only way. And I think like what we've done is the hard way. We've done it the hard way because it requires, we can't really hire interchangeable cogs. Everybody that joins the company, especially a company our size, it's very small. 
Every person you add really changes the culture. So you kind of have to think, okay, how does that end? We've made the problem harder for ourselves. But then again, we think that by doing the hard thing, we get better results. So it's it, it's a trade-off in a lot of dimensions. I think the, the great thing about it and you know the, the openness and, and your ways of working is it's probably quite good for your internal developer experience. And well, to be honest, it's I think it's probably very good for your customer's developer experience as well. But I think that you've had some uh, some high-profile hires of late. Would you like to tell us a little bit? I think that's really exciting stuff. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the best thing you can be in business is lucky. So, I mean, last year we were exceptionally lucky uh, with IT Revolution, the publishing company behind GeneChem, the Phoenix Project, uh, and lots of the, the most important books in our space. They published a book called Investments Unlimited, which was quite shocking for me when it came out because it tells, I mean, it's a fictional story like the Phoenix Project, and it tells the story of a, of a small bank in America who has been issued an MRIA, which is a, a matter requiring immediate a, attention. So it's like a very, very stern warning from the regulators that you will lose your banking license if you don't fix these things. And if you don't have a banking license, you're not really a bank anymore. So, and it was, you know, it tells the story, like a bank, they've gone to a DevOps transformation, but guess what? They didn't bring in security and audit and compliance and risk into the conversation. And then it tells the, you know, the usual hero's journey about how they solved all this. And a big part of the way they solved this was kind of building half of Cosly. I thought, okay, this is, uh, this is, this is really interesting for us because now we've got a book that we basically want the whole world to read. So, I mean, I can't tell you how many. Yes, I was just thinking they should have had costly. <laughs> yes, and, but I mean, we've bought hundreds and hundreds of copies of this book and given them to anyone that wants to read it. So if you want to copy the book, feel free to reach out to me. I've got boxes and boxes of them. We'll leave a link for you in the show notes. Yes, yes, please do. And it turned out that one of the authors, uh, John Willis, was at DevOps Days in Washington, D.C. When I was there, we were sponsoring the conference in September. And John won't mind me telling this story because he's told that a million times as well, but he proposed an open space session on Investments Unlimited. And it was, it was quite well attended. And for those of you who don't know who John Wallace is, obviously he's one of the authors of Investments Unlimited, but he also co-authored the DevOps Handbook together with Gene Kim. I think he's written 40 books by now. Um, he also was a founder at Socket Plane, which was a company bought by Docker. He sold the company to Dell. He was employee number nine at Chef. So, I mean, he's seen a few things in the DevOps space. And so in this open space, uh, in this room in Washington, we're talking about this and he's saying, you need immutable attestations. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's right. And about half an hour into the conversation, I, I didn't mention Cosly once, I promise. Uh, and then he said, and there's no tool doing any of this stuff right now. And I kind of raised my hand and said, I hate to be the I hate to be be the shell for my, my product in the DevOps days open space, but I think we do. And a bit more. And he goes, no, you don't. I'm sick of you vendors. You're always saying you do compliance. It's nonsense. I've spoke to Splunk. I've spoke to Dado. None of you do it. Like, do you do immutable attestations? Yeah, yeah, we do. Do you do, uh, can you fail the, if you don't have, pro yeah, yeah. Can you, can you keep chain uh, track of and, uh, and taint? Yeah, yeah, we do all of that. Look, okay, this is maybe not the space. Can I just finish this, this sentence? Please, John. He goes, yeah, yeah, okay. 
I think we do all this stuff. And he goes, well, okay, if you do, I'll, I'll come over and I'll check you out after the space. And <laughs> he came over and he goes, look, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm just so sick of all these vendors telling us we do this stuff. And it's not true. So I'm like, well, look, come and have a look at what we've done. So, oh, yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. So, okay, um, this is great. We should stay in touch. I'm like, yeah, okay. One of the authors of Investment and Limited wants to stay in touch. And then, Long story short, three weeks later, uh, we have a employment contract in front of him, and he's signing it. And it's like the best thing that ever happened to us. So I mean, he's he's a fantastic person with a fantastic track record, and just such a nice guy as well. We're, we're extremely happy that he joined us. So that was the start of the journey. The next thing that happened is that we we also happened to meet Bill Bensing, another of the co-authors of Investments Unlimited, at the DevOps Enterprise Summit in Las Vegas. And he joined us last week as our field CTO. So we have uh, two fantastic employees kind of spearheading our kind of our start of our US operation. So we couldn't be happier at the moment. You know, it's absolutely astonishing, Mike, to to listen to this. I think that's a wonderful kind of wrap up. It's like when when I looked at this and, you know, after speaking with you a bit more now, it's like there's so much rhetoric that I have used over the years in trying to set visions for people and for companies. You know, being compliant is, is more than passing audits. Audit information should be a query or an export, you know, not toil. We should have a single source of truth and maybe even a common vocabulary across the stakeholder silos. Um, one of my favorites here is like, you're a unicorn to me already because in the investor and startup space, I would say, you know, investors are always saying we invest in the team, not in the idea. And, you know, I always say, show me the customer and then I'll, you know, consider to invest. And you started with the customer at the very, very beginning. And I think that's absolutely astonishing. And then, you know, just the ability that Costly has to go beyond, you know, the traceability even that I have been considering my whole career of SCM. You know, I want to know every change that has gone through the system, but being able to even take this from what's actually in production. And to do all this and actually also be, you know, in the in the culture space and be contributing it publicly, you know, I really just have to applaud you. I think it's really astonishing work that you're doing here. Oh, well, that's that's very kind. Um, and just kind of on the investor story, I have to say, not every investor saw the potential in us. Uh, explaining change management and audit, uh, it, it doesn't sound like the next Airbnb to the average investor, right? It's very niche. It doesn't sound like it's got any kind of go-to-market pool. Uh, so, I mean, honestly, it, it wasn't easy in the beginning. But eventually, we did find the right investor in, uh, in Silicon Valley, actually, a, a company called Heavybit. And what's Super interesting about them is that they only invest in de developer tools. And the partners in the fund are, uh, one of them was the founder at Chef and an early AWS engineer. One of them was uh, the founder of Heroku. One of them was a founder at Labrato, the observability tool. So when I met them, they were the only VC that I'd spoken to. I, I kissed a lot of frogs in this journey. And uh, they definitely turned into a prince. It, from the very beginning, they understood the problem. They'd work with SOC 2 compliance and standardization and audits. And they understood the DevOps side of things. And uh, it's been fantastic because, you know, once you get that kind of that kind of experience behind you, who like they understand what you are, where you're at and what it takes to build a developer tool company, it's, it's been fantastic. 
thanks again, Mike. Um, I have two more questions uh, that we ask all of the participants on the DevOps Sauna podcast. Uh, the first one is, um, think back when you were a child, what was the first thing that you remember that you wanted to be when you grow up? Oh, that's easy. I wanted to fly planes. I still actually want to fly planes. <laughs> it's a uh... Well, go fly planes, Mike. Yeah, it's a, if only I had the time, it would be. It'd be a, I think it's a fantastic thing. I do have it on my to-do list at some point to get. See, see, I don't know if Microsoft Flight Simulator is still around, but get into flight simulation a little bit and learn some of the basics. I mean, I think you can do that right in your living room today and get on your way. So, okay, the second one is, was there a point in your life where you either crystallized that you're on the right path or you realized that you're on the wrong path and you needed to change? Hmm, that's a good question. I never feel like I've, like, I, I'm not the kind of person that has regrets. I, I've got no regrets from my life, but I think I've also been quite decisive in my path. I've never been afraid to quit. And every time I've done it, it turned out to be a fantastic uh, step for me. Yeah, I, I can't really name something in particular, but maybe the, the, the most kind of decisive moment in, in my career, at least, was after, so we didn't really get into my background, but I, I was basically a technologist that studied computer science. And for the first 10 years of my career, I worked in one company. Uh, it was, I had positions in England and Norway and China. It was great. I was making all these fancy robots doing all these fancy things. It was super high tech, greenfield. It was like engineering dreamland for me. But after 10 years, I realized that, you know, I'm either going to have my whole career in this company or I'm going to have to make a change. Uh, so it was after, yeah, like, okay, now, now is the time. And kind of it felt like a big step, right? If you've only ever known one company in your life and then making that change can, and can feel like a big thing. But having done it on the other side, I ended up falling into consulting, which was great because like, I had 10 years at one company. And in my first year of consulting, I worked with 10 companies. And okay, you don't get the same depth or you know leverage often, but you, you get such a wider view of what's out there. So I think that, that might be my choice. Okay. Thank you very much for being with us today. Mike Long, CEO of Costly. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Yep. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. All right. And once again, thank you, Andy. Thanks, Mark. Before we go, let's give our guest an opportunity to introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about who we are. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cosly. We're a developer tool startup which builds trust and observability from commit to production. So roughly what we do is we record everything that's happening in your production environments, connect them to the events in your code pipelines, and give you a searchable record when you need it. So we help around incident response, security, compliance, and just understanding what's going on. My name is Mark Dillon. I'm a lead consultant in the transformation business at Efficode. My name is Andy Allred, and I'm doing platform engineering at Efficode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please like and subscribe. It means the world to us. Also, check out our other interesting talks and tune in for our next episode. Take care of yourself and remember what really matters is everything we do with machines is to help humans. <laughs>